Good morning. Muy buenos dias. Well, at least for me anyway, uh, I've reached the end of the road as far as my talks are concerned. This one this morning will be a, an abbreviated talk on the persecution, persecution of the church in Mexico. I alluded to it yesterday, the persecution of the church in Mexico in the 19-teens and 1920s. And there's a great deal to talk about. In fact, I have a full one-hour presentation that I've done that if you want to hear the whole thing, you can go to lighthousecatholicmedia.org, and it's available there in English and Spanish. Um, and there's also a video version of it as well, which might be on YouTube, I don't know. But if you want the full effect in one hour, uh, that's where you can find it. In the meantime, however, I'll just give you kind of a quick overview. And I found as I was researching this years ago that not only do virtually no Americans know the story of the persecution of the church in Mexico, very few Mexicans know the story about the persecution of the church in Mexico. They may have vague ideas about uh, Father Miguel Pro, the heroic Jesuit priest who died by firing squad in 1927. They may have general ideas about how times were tough for the Catholic Church, but few people realize just how severe and vociferous the persecutions were against the Catholic Church. For example, did you know that in Mexico there were concentration camps where Catholics were rounded up and held similar to what was in Auschwitz? And uh, if they tried to escape, they were machine gunned or bayoneted to death. Uh, there's so much to this story that has been lost, I think maybe intentionally, as a result of a rewriting of history and an attempt to portray some of the figures who are involved in this as if they were really heroes when in fact they weren't. For example, when you go to the typical Mexican restaurant in the United States, you're going to see retro pictures of Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata and people like that who were part of the Mexican Revolution <clears throat> in the 19-teens. Well, they were evil guys. They weren't heroes. They weren't like Robin Hood. They weren't give to the, you know, steal from the rich and give to the poor. They did steal from the rich, but they were not interested in so much giving to the poor as they were enriching themselves and amassing power. Um, they were murderers, and it was, it was just a time when Mexico was in a state of upheaval. And you may wonder, well, how did it get to that point? After all, Mexico had been Catholic for centuries. Our Lady appeared there in 1531. The church was uh, more or less uncontested. There really were no significant other religious groups in Mexico for hundreds of years. There were no Mormons or Protestants or any other groups there. So how did it come about that the Catholic Church underwent such a dramatic and bloody persecution? It didn't come out of nowhere. So if we, and again, I'm going to have to skip over a number of things that are crucial to the story, but I will give you a sense of <clears throat> how this, this persecution, <clears throat> the roots of it, actually began a couple of hundred years earlier in France and England and Germany in the time that we call the Enlightenment. Now, the Enlightenment is a term that is both appropriate and inappropriate because, on the one hand, it is true that the Enlightenment thinkers were intent upon exploring science and philosophical inquiry, the scientific method, making use of human ingenuity and, and human tools to learn about the world around us, and that was a very good thing. So these, these 
in these ideas or these goals directly led to things like the Industrial Revolution, which came another 100, 150 years later, in which we see this great profusion of scientific discoveries, something simple like you know, the cotton gin or things of that nature came about because there was a renewed effort on the part of many scientists and others to make use of human ingenuity to achieve greater things. Now there's a lot in that whole story as well, but the negative side of the Enlightenment was that many of these Enlightenment thinkers, their project was to undermine and if possible overthrow and eliminate the influence of the church in the life of the everyday person. So there was a concerted effort to discredit not only the church herself and the pope, but also divine revelation as such. This idea that we could look to the Bible for truth and that the Bible had something not just meaningful but authoritative for us in this life. These were ideas that the Enlightenment thinkers, each in their own way, in some cases intentionally, in other cases maybe not quite so intentionally, they were trying to push the influence of the church out to the peripheries and substitute it with science and, and human ingenuity. And they were very successful. And it was also at this time that as the rise of the Enlightenment thinkers and their influence grew, there also came into existence a movement known as Freemasonry. Now, the roots of Freemasonry, if you ask a Mason, he'll tell you that Freemasonry started when King Solomon was building the temple long before the time of Jesus. And that's not true. There were Masons there, stonemasons. They were cutting the stones and doing all the things that Masons do, but they were not Freemasons. They didn't have the religious and philosophical and political ambitions that the Freemasons over the last, say, 250, 300 years have had. <coughs> so Freemasonry is a component of what led up to the persecution of the church in Mexico because as Enlightenment thought began to not just permeate the European continent, but also become exported to other areas such as the New World. It was more and more common in the United States by the time we reached the American Revolution, Ben Franklin, George Washington, we talked a little bit about them. And one interesting little side note is that Mexico previously had been um, kind of a hodgepodge of different rulers over time. And the Habsburg government in Austria-Hungary wanted to um, have some control in what was happening in the New World, this over against the Monroe Doctrine in the United States, which you remember from your civics classes, said that President Monroe stipulated that the United States would not tolerate any foreign power in North or South America in a colonial fashion, like owning and operating a country. So uh, the emperor's uh, brother, Maximilian von Habsburg, he was offered the opportunity to come to Mexico as a titular monarch, as the emperor of Mexico. And the only way that this could actually be enforced was by the, the assistance of the French government. So this would be Napoleon III. And this is all taking place in the, uh, the early 1860s, late 1850s, early 1860s. So he accepts this invitation from a group of those who wanted a monarchy reestablished in Mexico. He went to Mexico and he and his wife, Charlotte Carlotta in Spanish, um, they became the rulers at least ostensibly, of Mexico. And they were very much aligned with the Catholic Church, as you might imagine. And the French had 
maybe 40,000 troops stationed in Mexico over a span of several years to prop up his government. Now, when Napoleon III needed more money and he wanted less expenditures and it was politically less expedient for him to be doing this, he withdrew his support of these French troops from Mexican soil, and that left Maximilian in a very precarious situation. Now, I'm sure everybody here has at least once, if not more often, celebrated Cinco de Mayo, okay? Sometimes known as Cinco de Drinco, because I think that's <laughs> maybe a more common way of celebrating it here in the United States. And most people have this notion that that is the Mexican Independence Day. It is not. It has nothing to do with Mexican independence per se. It's the celebration of the date in which the Republican, the secular Republican uh, government in exile, you might say, in Mexico under Benito Juarez, defeated a French army detachment at Puebla. They won a battle. And it wasn't long after that that the French began to pull out. They were in the process of pulling out, but eventually they did. So it wasn't like the 4th of July. It wasn't like that, but it's sort of understood in those terms now. And in fact, what this led to was the overthrow of Maximilian. So he wound up fleeing, and he was eventually captured, and he was executed by firing squad. And the crowns of Europe asked, the Pope asked, for his life to be spared and allow him to come to Europe to be in exile. And, um, and um, Benito Juarez, who was the, the head of the Republicans, he said no, and they executed him by firing squad in Querétaro, which is north of Mex Mexico City. So that was the end of the ambitions of the Habsburg family and any other European family or government to have a foothold in the United States or in, in the New World. But what came from that was the, the wholesale imposition of a Freemasonic and atheist government. Now, Benito Juarez, if you go to Mexico City, the airport is named after him, and he is hailed as a hero. And in his case, I, I would dispute the hero part because um, he was actively against the Catholic Church. He was thoroughly imbued with um, Enlightenment theory and Freemasonic principles. So much so that the first official act that Benito Juarez undertook when he was finally in power after overthrowing Juarez was he turned one of the largest Catholic churches in Mexico City into a Masonic Lodge. So he appropriated it. He said, we're taking that. Thank you very much. And they stripped the altars, got rid of all the statues and everything, and then they turned it into a Masonic Lodge. So this is maybe a precursor of worse things to come. Now, this is in the, 18, the late 1860s. So the United States Civil War had just concluded. We're in the, in the midst of our own Industrial Revolution. Mexico is a country that is ripe for, um, some would say exploitation, and others would say development. And in its natural resources, its oil and the various other natural resources it had, you can imagine that there were many not just uh, companies, but also governments who are interested in getting a piece of the pie in Mexico. And there was a more or less benevolent dictator who became the, the president of Mexico, and he, for over 30 years, he had a relatively stable government, didn't really bother the church too much. Porfirio Diaz was his name, 
And so he reigned for quite a long time. And he was a very old man by the time, I, should, I, said, I said he reigned, he was technically elected, but he was more or less a dictator. And as, the, as his age sort of dwindled to the time when he would die, this is where we begin to see the rise of the Freemasonic atheistic efforts to, to foment revolution in Mexico. And when Porfirio Diaz left office, and that would have been in 1910, a series of presidents of Mexico became, um, they went in office and left office quickly. So we have Francisco Madero, Victoriano Huerta, Venustiano Carranza, Álvaro Obregón, and the worst of them all was Plutarco Elias Calles. I don't know if that name rings any bells. Calles was a terrible, terrible guy, avowed atheist. He was um, the governor uh, for a time in, where was he? He was governor of, I think it was Sinaloa, but I have to double check that. And as governor, even before he ever became president of Mexico, he outlawed the Catholic faith in his state. And he exiled priests. He had many priests killed. In fact, 160 priests were shot in 1915. And in the United States, uh, John Lind, who was an advisor to President Woodrow Wilson, he wrote, great news. The more priests they kill in Mexico, the happier I shall be. He also wrote to an American Protestant minister who himself had written to President Wilson protesting the persecution of Catholics in Mexico, and he said to the Protestant minister, after prostitution, the worst thing in Mexico is the Catholic Church. Both must disappear. So there were a series of, <coughs> you might say, ratcheting up of persecution against the church, first in small ways, and then it became more and more overt and finally, under Calles, the, uh, what are known as the Calles Law, in essence, made the Catholic Church illegal in any form. So to give you some examples, the churches, parish churches, uh, were not only confiscated by the government, but no Catholic clergy were allowed to administer them. And there was a committee of lay people, lay men, in the community who would be formed to take charge of the church and administer it, but the only people who could be elected to the committee were Freemasons and atheists. So no devout Catholic could actually take part in op the operating of a church. The sacraments were forbidden. It got so absurd that under these Calles laws that it was forbidden by the government to even say the word adios because it had the word Dios in it, God. So it was that ridiculous, and if people were heard saying adios, and who doesn't say adios in Spanish when you're in Mexico? Everybody says it. So you could be fined for that. And certain infractions, if you were found uh, attending a clandestine mass, for example, you would be imprisoned. So they had fines, they had imprisonment, and they also had capital punishment for those who were either repeat offenders or who were doing something like aiding and abetting a priest undercover, such as Father Miguel Pro. And so this went on for several years, and just given the shortness of time, I'm going to have to skip over a lot of the specific details. But the main thing is that the Calles laws, they stipulated the following. All foreign priests and nuns were expelled from the country. Any and all schools were disbanded and shut down simply for having a religious name in it. Even if it was not Catholic in nature, if it had a religious name, it would be shut down. 
if it was reported that a school or some other institution had any kind of religious object, a statue, a crucifix, an image, or Bible, it was also summarily shut down. All seminaries, convents, and other religious houses were disbanded and shut down. Many, charitable, many Catholic charitable works were also shut down. So imagine if this were happening in the present day, the government would show up and they would tell the sisters, uh, change out of your habits, get into regular clothes, and get out of here. And we don't care where you go, but you're not allowed to stay here anymore. They were not allowed to live in community. And this beautiful facility with everything in it would be taken over by the government. They might stable horses in this room here. Uh, they might use this for target practice. I mean, th they did horrible things. They profaned the Holy Eucharist. And this was done even before that with the California missions. When the California missions kind of changed hands during the, the tumult in Mexico in the 19th century, uh, we saw some of those things as well. The law also, uh, it stipulated a 500 peso fine for wearing priestly or religious garb in public, imprisonment for up to five years for even questioning these laws. Uh, I mentioned adios was outlawed, si Dios quiere was outlawed, uh, and those who broke the law, if they were caught, they were fined or imprisoned. All native Mexican clergy were required to register with the state, and without this official government authorization, it was forbidden to them to minister to the faithful in any way whatsoever under pain of capital punishment. So you need your baby baptized if that priest is not registered with the government. And they would only register priests who were willing to go along with their plan. Uh, if you wanted your baby baptized by a priest, he r ran the risk of being executed by firing squad if this was discovered. Um, no mass, no confessions, no sacraments. No priest could minister without the express permission of the government. He had to have a certification saying that the atheistic Freemasons thought he was okay to uh, function as a priest. And you can imagine the good priests did not get that certification. All Catholic churches, cathedrals, basilicas, convents were effectively confiscated by the government. The anti-Catholic laws enacted during this time required that all Catholic church property, especially parishes, be legally transferred to this committee that I mentioned, this specially formed committee of laymen who were appointed by the local mayor or governor. No priest or bishop was permitted to administer a parish, and the Catholic church could own no property. All priests were required by law to be married, or else permission to carry out their ministry would be revoked or, or not granted. So in the case of those priests who did receive the authorization from the government, one of the things that they had to do would be to take a wife. And you can see how that would not just demoralize the people, but also destroy the priesthood. All religious orders were outlawed. In some places, it was decreed that there could only be one bishop residing in an entire Mexican state, again, authorized by the government. Every Mexican who had any kind of public office, police, civil servants, mayors, governors, dog catchers, etc., uh, or who was a teacher in any capacity at any level of schooling was required by law to make a public oath of acceptance of the anti-Catholic laws decreed by the Mexican government. Anyone who refused with these was either imprisoned or executed by firing squad. Many thousands of heroic Catholic men and women, primarily lay people, by the way, were punished this way. There were countless hundreds of priests who were murdered by the government under the anti-Catholic persecution, many religious sisters. So it wasn't merely exile for them. Many of them met their death by firing squad, but many, many more lay people were killed this way, including those lay people who were rounded up and put into 
concentration camps. Um, these concentration camps were places where the faithful, the, the lay faithful who refused to give up their Catholic faith often died of disease and very often also by rifle and machine gun fire because the guards on the walls would uh, shoot to kill if anybody tried to not only escape, but if a Catholic who was in one of the concentration camps even did something like make the sign of the cross, they would be shot. Um, Catholics who defied the government were killed or imprisoned. Their haciendas, crops, homes, and even entire villages were burned to the ground. The government plundered their possessions. And in response to all of this, the Catholic Church, in, by the form of the bishops of Mexico, they issued an interdict forbidding Catholic faithful from participating in government-approved committees and even entering a Catholic church because now those churches were all firmly in the clutches of the Mexican government. So you see a standoff happening here. Well, <coughs> this is when we see the rise of what's known as the Cristero movement the Cristiada, as it's known, the Cristero uprising against the government. And because I only have a few moments left, and I want to double check, I only have now four moments, four minutes left, uh, I will say that the Cristero uprising was heroic and very successful until um, there was a betrayal of the Cristeros in which they were told by certain bishops to lay down their arms and they would be, there would be peace made with the with the Mexican government, and they'd be permitted to go back to their homes and whatnot. And in fact, uh, and there's a question about whether or not um, that might have been a Freemasonic plot to do this, and I want to give you the exact date when this happened. Um, but yes, so this would have been 1929 when this took place. Father Miguel Pro had already been executed. Um, Jesus de Goyado, who was the commander-in-chief of the Cristeros, he addressed his troops and he said, His Holiness the Pope, by the intermediary of the most excellent apostolic nuncio, has decided for reasons that are unknown to us, but which as Catholics we accept, that public worship shall be resumed tomorrow without the law being changed. Meaning that Catholics who previously had been told by the bishops don't go into church because if you do, then you'll be participating with this government that is persecuting the church. Because the government wanted the people more under its control. So by giving them the access to the churches for masses with these priests who had taken wives and who had um, compromised. That's what the government wanted. And so the bishops had said, no, don't participate, stay away. So the head of the Cristeros, he says, for reasons which are unknown to us, <clears throat> as Catholics, we accept that public worship will be resumed tomorrow without the law, meaning the anti-Catholic law being changed. This arrangement has rested from us that which is most noble and most holy on our flag at the moment when the church has declared that she will resign herself to what she has obtained. Consequently, the National Guard assumes responsibility for the conflict. As for ourselves as men, we have a satisfaction that no one can take from us. The National Guard does not disappear defeated by its enemies, referring to the Cristero army, but rather abandoned by the very ones who were to be the first to receive the fruit of our sacrifices in abnegation. Hail Christ, those for you, those who for you are going to humiliation, to exile, and perhaps to an inglorious death, with the most fervent love, we salute you and once more proclaim you as king of our country. So as you might expect, this truce was not respected by Callez. It was a trick. And as soon as the Cristeros laid down their arms and, started, and stopped fighting, 
Uh, he had his government troops round, round them up, and 6,000 Cristero leaders and soldiers were all executed by firing squad. As a lesson, as a message to those who might try to do likewise. So that was the very abbreviated history of a very dark time in, in Mexico. As I say, there's so much more to it if you're interested in hearing more. Um, I encourage you to do so because I think I mentioned this last night, I do see some odd and ominous parallels between our current situation and what happened in Mexico. And here again, what we are experiencing did not arise in a vacuum. It has built over time and many factors and forces and people and things hidden and not so hidden have contributed to the situation that we're in now, but we can learn from our forefathers and foremothers in the faith about what it means to be courageous and uh, unswerving in our dedication to Christ. Now, I truly wish I could share more with you. I don't mean to leave you hanging on such a down note, <clears throat> but it is a very downer story, um, and at best we can learn from it for our own sakes. Thank you very much.